Thanks for coming back. This is part two of a two-part conversation that I had with Todd Bolsinger, author of Canoeing the Mountains. If you haven't listened to part one, I would encourage you, before you progress in part two, go back and listen to the first half. It'll make a lot more sense if you do it that way. Uh, Without any more introduction, let's jump into it, because I know you're ready to hear it. Part two of my conversation with Todd Bolsinger, author of Canoeing the Mountains. In in chapter six, uh, you write, Culture Trumps Strategy. A uh, couple things with this. How, how is that possible? What does that mean? What does that look like? And uh, you can tie it back to, you know, obviously tie Lewis and Clark, what you've seen, that kind of stuff. I just want to want to hear your take on that. So that's a take on Peter Drucker's phrase, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Yep. Um, and what it means is that you have your plans, but the unconscious, unspoken way that we function is going to be more powerful than your plan. So, so just think about this if in, in our family, right? You, you wake up one morning and you say, you say to your kids, hey, look, we're going to be healthier. We're going to stop eating pancakes and cereal. We're going to have healthier breakfast and we're all going to get up in the morning and take a big walk together so that we can be healthier. And you can do that for a couple of days. And what next thing you notice is without even trying, you know, you're trying to get people going and you tell the kids grab their shoes and, and they're, you're looking at a bowl of cereal in front of them or mm-hmm. a stack of them or they're bothering you for pancakes, right? It's not that they're bad or lazy. It's that you, we, culture is the inculcated values that we have replicated with our behaviors and our actions for a long period of time, where they are almost second nature. It's like a fish talking about water. And so when a leader comes in with a brand new initiative and can't figure out why they won't take, that, that, it's, that basically what you have to do is you've got to rework the culture so that your ideas will work. You've got to create new habits, new values, new ways of being, new ways of functioning. And that just takes a long time. It's like trying to grow a vineyard in bad soil. You can throw all of the seeds in all you want, all the water you want, but if you don't rebuild the soil, that thing's not going to grow. I think this next question ties into the culture piece of it, but then also when the map ends um, and maybe the whole, I'm, I'm thinking as leadership as a whole, but trust. What role does trust play when the map ends? How do we establish it, build it with our people? The best way to think about trust is that trust is like a bank account, right? So when you start, people give you, you have probably a small amount of money in your bank account. People trusted you enough to listen to you or to join your team or whatnot. And they trust you, but they only trust you for what they know. As you demonstrate credibility, technical competence, it gives you credibility, trust increases as you demonstrate relational congruence, as you go through conflict, as you make decisions, as the way you treat people. Some of my staff have had to go through, you know, layoff, had to lead people through layoffs. I've got to teach my managers how to do that in such a way that when you lay people off, you treat them well, but you're also demonstrating to everybody else that when a time comes, if the situation calls for it, I'll be treated well. Mm -hmm. Well, that builds trust. So over time, that builds trust. When you have to make a decision, that moves people off the map, you are going to spend some of that capital. Trust is going to go down. The only thing you got to do is have enough to keep it in the positive. You've got, if not, you can't go bankrupt. If you go bankrupt on trust, I say where trust is gone, the, the journey is over. And so, so you're always building trust through technical competence and relational congruence. And you're building trust by be, demonstrating that you can learn that we're getting better. You know, like, so we might have failed, but we learned this and the next iteration of our thing was better. Or uh, we acknowledged our, our failures or our mistakes and we we're learning from them. And so you can trust me to learn from them. 
So as trust grows, you have the capacity then to do a withdrawal of trust when you have to make a hard decision. And you see this in spades in the, in the Lewis and Clark story. They had, these people had to just keep going when they had no idea what was around the bend. Can you speak a little bit to the dynamic between Lewis and Clark? It's a fascinating thing. We know them as Lewis and Clark, like one word, right? right, right? Like, so you, like, you can be in Lewiston, Idaho and not know it was named after Meriwether Lewis because you, you didn't see Clark with it. You can be in Clark County, Kentucky, as I was, giving a presentation on this topic <laughs> And not knowing that this Clark County was named after William Clark. Matter of fact, I walked right by a William Clark statue because I wasn't used to thinking of Clark without Lewis. Mm-hmm. So one of the most powerful parts about their about their story is that they were a partner. They were partners in every way. That's Meriwether Lewis asked his former supervisor, his former military superior officer, to be his partner. William Clark accepted the partnership, and then even after Congress said that they weren't comfortable with them being partners. They wanted Meriwether Lewis to outrank William Clark. Lewis wrote back to Clark and said, nah, I'll keep my word to you. As far as the men are concerned, they're never going to know that I outrank you. We're going to be partners. We're going to both be captains. So uh, William Clark was actually a lieutenant, but to the men, he was called captain. And not one time in three years did they ever have a disagreement where Meriwether Lewis pulled rank. So they demonstrated this kind of partnership that is stunning. And I think we need more models of partnerships where people use, build on each other's strengths, uh, work together in collaboration and create a dynamic that is different than a single soul leader. From your perspective, would you consider them friends? Well, they were. They were actually old friends and they were dear friends. And and they were uh, even after the um, after the Corps of Discovery uh, expedition. Uh, they stayed in touch. They they se- went separate ways. And you know, uh, later on in life, Meriwether Lewis committed suicide. He's, he was a um, he was a tragic character. Mm-hmm. And, I, and one of the reasons why I do think he wanted William Clark with him is he trusted him, and that he he had struggled with depression and alcoholism probably most of his life. And um, it, but during the years of the expedition, he it seemed that he was able to keep it all at bay. Uh, later on, it didn't. But William Clark was kind of a person that he wrote to and connected to his whole life. So you can you can lead someone and be in a leadership position with f- friendship as a dynamic because I've I've heard that you, you know you don't go in, you don't want to go into business with family or friends you don't want to do that but what dynamic is has been established between Lewis and Clark or was established excuse me um, and then they were put up against <laughs> death and grizzly bears and unknown and yet friendship is okay so it, does that translate? For us as well, in like the business and nonprofit world. Well, this is what I would say: is I think when people say you shouldn't go into business with friends, what you're acknowledging is is how how uh, much more complicated that becomes. So, so this is a this is actually for those people who uh, this is one of the most interesting parts about having been a pastor. So, the church is literally a family business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a group of people who are all because of our shared faith, we believe we're brothers and sisters which means I need to have a relationship with you that is inherently about how much I care about you. But if somebody comes on my staff, my brother and sister now comes on my staff, now we have a mission to accomplish. We have people who are donating money for us to be able to accomplish the mission of this church to make an impact in the world and to be faithful to our faith. So I often said to people, you know, we are now in a family business and that the complications about that are are huge. So if you so if you ever want to talk to somebody about friendship, you should talk to people who are in family businesses. 
and what they have to do with that. Like, you know, the so-and-so that you need to fire is you, the, coming over for Thanksgiving yeah. dinner and is going to be in your life maybe forever. And the person that you need to have a hard conversation with because they're not performing and they want you to pay them more so that you can help them support their family that you mm -hmm. love is the person who you need to be able to be really clear with about the expectations that we have or the agreements of the work we've done. So, so I actually think that what you see in Lewis and Clark, which is, and what you see in many models of leadership is that you have to develop the emotional maturity to be able to manage a deeper set of relationships that are built on trust, but that also have a reason for existing and being together that is more than just the relationship. And that's the complication. Can you talk a little bit about the, the, the mission, um, how the, the mission itself um, trumped what they were going through and, and the idea of, of refocusing on the mission when you, when you come up against whatever obstacle? What I believe is the mission of an organization is ultimately the impact it wants to make. So I, I, I've talked with folks in Silicon Valley who've said to me, you know, Todd, the, the best products, the best things that are happening in technology are the ones that actually solve a problem. So the mission of an institution or an organization can't be its own survival and it can't be its own thriving. Um, if nobody, I, don't, I mean, people might want to join with your company because I'm going to make you rich. But really, that's as soon as there's a downturn or as soon as there's a problem, you're they're going to turn away. That's not a mission focus. Mission is the impact we want to make, and I think everybody wants a purpose. Um, I think even more important than passion is a sense of purpose. Here is what I want my life to matter, and I want my work to matter, and I want. And yes, I would like to, you know, be successful or have a make a comfortable living for my family, but I'd like to do so doing something that matters. So the mission is that thing. And I always say, if you sacrifice that for anything else, it's over. So for Lewis and Clark, what was so powerful was their charge was to find a water route. So when they get to the top of the Lemhi Pass, which is like on the border of Montana and Idaho, and they find that there's no water route, why didn't they turn around? Why didn't they go back and tell Jefferson, hey, you told, sent us to find a water route. There isn't a water route. You should know that immediately. And the reason for that is because Meriwether Lewis had been Thomas Jefferson's secretary. He lived with Thomas Jefferson. He knew all about Jefferson's deepest values. And Jefferson and Lewis and Clark were committed to enlightenment values, which was a belief that, that, the, that the increase of human knowledge will lead to the growth of human happiness. Now, you could debate whether that's true, but that was their deepest belief. So the core of discovery was really about discovering a whole new world, not discovering a water route. So at that moment, they kept going because whatever they were going to learn around the bend and in this was going to be more important than the disappointment of not having a water route. And that deepest value is the, what we come back to in these moments of crisis and change. And if you don't have a core animating value, a core purpose and reason for being, then it's pretty hard to get people to be motivated to keep going. So that's why the most important thing, and I think this is really true for leaders, if you're the person who is the authorized leader in a system, what you're really responsible for is being a custodian of that mission. And if you lose that by saying, well, all we really want to do is, you know, make sure we're number one in our market or we are, um, you know, that we're famous or that we all can get out of this thing and take as much money as we can or, or, the, or this, keeps, this keeps us all, this keeps us all employed. 
it's pretty hard to motivate people to go through loss and change. They will, they will jump as soon as they've got a better deal. Taking it a little bit further than what about the core leadership teams? So um, whether it's Lewis and Clark looking at each other and they've got the core discovery that are kind of around them or our team uh, at CCB or your team, what questions should we be asking each other when facing that unknown moment? Well, one of the biggest things I think we look, we have to ask each other is, um, are we being faithful to our mission? I, I, I think this happens a lot. Yeah, I think good. the like, there's a reason why we started this. Are we still doing that? One of my favorite stories out of business is the story of Hewlett and Packard, right? That started HP. What's powerful about them is they were friends who said, we want to build a really great company that treats people really, really well in something with electronics. They looked for a product. They spent a lot of, I mean, it took them a long time. But what they cared more about was the culture of how they treated people. And so the HP culture became famous. And later on with other leaders, when that was violated, uh, that's when the company began to go down. Because the reason why people were there is they wanted to be part of this kind of a company, this kind of organization. So I often say that for me, the, what I need out of my core leaders is I need us to be um, agreed on the mission and on the values. Here's what we're going to do and here's how we're going to do it. And if, we, and if this, if we can't make a living or there isn't a market or there isn't people to do this, well, then we'll either fold this up or we'll find another thing to do in the way we do it. And, and those are the things we can't um, sacrifice. When we sacrifice them, now it becomes just instrumental and uh, rather than genuinely what I would call missional. For those of you that are going to pick up the book, page 95 on the bottom, the question that stopped me in this um, conversation about unknown moments and core ideology and these questions, the question that you posed here was, what are we willing to let go of so the mission will continue. I don't know if there's anything more for you to say on that. I just, that, that to me is scary. That's super scary. Yeah. So, so, um, so I often, I think that one of the best, I mean, I do a lot of executive coaching and one of the coaching questions I'm always asking people is, so what is the challenge for you in this? And then as soon as they can identify it, this is the thing I need to do. Here's the challenge. I'll then say, so what are you willing to let go of? So you can attend to that. If it's, you can't just add it. And so, again, if you think about the story of Lewis and Clark, they literally had to drop their canoes. <laughs> like they had to literally take the canoes they built with their own hands and they had to leave them on the wayside or burn them or let them go so that they could keep going. That's pretty hard. And especially think about it. I always think there's some the people who came because they were great water navigators who all of a sudden now the only skill they had was that. So now what are they doing? They're. They're in the back picking up the gear or they're, you know, walking now, right? Like that ability to let go of something that can be seen like it's almost central to our identity to participate in something so much bigger than we can imagine, like the exploration of this, of this nation. Man. So uh, before, we, before we close out, there's two more things that I've got to ask about. Sabotage and the key to the whole transformational leadership thing. So first of all, what should we understand about sabotage as leaders? One of the people that I refer to a lot in the book is Ed Friedman, who was um, a marriage and family uh, systems therapist and a Jewish rabbi and a consultant in Washington, D.C. He saw dysfunction at lots of levels, right? He makes the statement that he believes, he says that literally in every change process or every leadership process, you make a change then there will be sabotage. 
you survive the sabotage, you can say you were successful in the change, right? So, so in every setting, there's sabotage. And what sabotage is, to be really clear, it's a, it's a hard word because we think of sabotage as people who are nefarious. These are, we think they're bad people who are lying to us, who are trying to stop us and we don't know. But actually, I always say that sabotage is not the, the um, evil things that bad people do. Sabotage are the human things that anxious people do. What sabotage is, is when the person who says to you, no, we, no, we, sh- we shouldn't go forward. No, we need to go back. No, we need to, we got to go find a river. No, the whole, like, like they're the ones stopping you from the moving forward because they think you're doing it wrong. They've lost mm-hmm. trust in you and they now begin to throw, you know, basically sand in the gears. And they believe with all their hearts that they are doing the right thing or that they're trying to preserve the status quo, or they're holding on to the thing that's most important. And that's why that's the crisis of adaptive leadership. There comes a moment when you are going to have to help people who are resisting you either come with you in the journey of transformation or step off and let you keep going. Friedman says that you can't believe, you cannot say that you have succeeded until you have survived the sabotage. Well, um, that's heavy. It's encouraging, but also uh, the, putting the sabotage in the framework of things that anxious people do. Well, that then, at least to me, uh, looking in a mirror, am I conveying some anxiousness or lack of confidence in certain areas? So as as I close this out, uh, last you know question, or there's a couple questions here. It's kind of an, another heavy one, but take a couple minutes if you need. For those of us who are bought in this idea of transformational leadership and, and we want to lead well, we want to lead well when the map ends because it's going to happen if we're actually going to do this leadership thing. Where should we focus? Where, where should we start? And, and is there a key to transformational leadership and what is that? I would say the key is this. You have to be a person who is committed to learning and can navigate loss. So that takes your capacity for self-reflection and your capacity for humility and resilience. If you weren't technically competent, we wouldn't be talking about leadership. You would be back there trying to figure out how to how to get your sales numbers up, right? Okay, so if you're leading, you probably have confidence. Now, relational congruence is the next place to start. Do people trust me? And remember, they're going to trust you not because you're the expert. You have credibility because you're the expert. They're going to trust you because you're congruent. And that means being able to say, we're going to learn. We're going to figure it out. This is going to be hard. That this might be difficult. I don't know if we're all going to make this, but I promise you that I will give you my best. I promise you I will be the first one on the field and the last one off. I promise you that I will take care of you. Right? You're what leaders need to be able to take people into uncharted territory. You've got to be able to engender the trust that comes out of basically demonstrating that you're a learner. You're going to be humble enough to be a learner. You're going to be resilient when you face losses, and you're going to keep going. And those things. Are at the core of it. I mean, the, the most recent book that I just uh, turned into my publisher that will come out later this year is a book on resilience and how do you how do you, how are we formed for resilience when we face resistance? I didn't know that there was another book coming out, but you can bet I'm going to try and get on your schedule uh, for another conversation because this has been fantastic. Thanks for the the invitation and the chance to talk about it. Okay, so action item. Takeaway and action item. I don't know how I could boil this down or do uh, justice to that conversation, the two-parter, but but here's here's where I'm at. Trust. 
What role does trust play when the map ends? Well, it's as we know, the foundation for everything when it comes to leadership. Everything else is built on trust, especially when the map ends. So action item, well, break down those three circles that I talked about with him, uh, with Todd, uh, when it comes to relational congruence, technical competence, and adaptive capacity and start to identify where you're struggling. Maybe you were promoted because of your technical competence uh, and you need to tweak some things when it comes to relational congruence. Are you who you are in every situation? Or the adaptive capacity, which is really where the map ends, we're able to adapt, put the canoes down, and start climbing mountains. Okay, the last thing I've got for you is an invitation to our tech showcase on May 13th at Miller Park in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We're going to have 20 different breakout sessions, two different tracks. One track for the breakout sessions is for IT pros, and one is for business leaders. Our two keynote speakers are going to bring it also. Josh Linkner is the founder and CEO of five different tech companies and will be speaking on Hacking Innovation, the new growth model from the sinister world of hackers. So a new spin on all this hacker stuff and what we can actually learn and how it pushes us forward uh, as thought leaders. And if you're more of a sports person, we've got you covered there as well. Barry Alvarez, the athletic director for the University of Wisconsin-Madison, has the longest head coaching tenure and the most wins in Wisconsin Badgers football history. He'll be speaking on overcoming adversity and other lessons learned during his legendary career with the Badgers. To join us, you can go to ccbtechnology.com slash techshowcase and sign up. Well, if you found value in this episode, I would ask that you take an extra couple of steps, subscribe to the podcast, and then review in whatever platform you're listening to this on. It helps us further our reach and uh, impact more folks that are in leadership positions or coming up in leadership positions. So we appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking time to do that. If you'd like to connect with us, you can shoot us an email at impactpodcast at ccbtechnology.com. Or you can find me on LinkedIn, just search Steve Shear and send me an invitation to connect and uh, maybe a suggestion on what I can do to help improve the podcast. And as always, from all of us here at CCB Technology, thanks for listening.